Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, made in 2001. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. John Williams violated his cardinal rule once again for his second film score of 2001. But really, how could you blame him for reading Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone? It was the hottest book in the world, and even if you hadn't read it when it was published in 1998, you surely knew about it. I'm going to say right up front that I did not read the novel when it was published, and as I record this in 2020, I confess that I still have not read it or any of the Harry Potter novels. I purposefully didn't read them when word of the movie versions was made public, so I could be surprised and entertained in the theater. But what excuse do I have now? None, really. I'm going to pause right here and let you know that I'm going to refer to this book moving forward as Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, not the Philosopher's Stone as it is known outside the United States. So, anyway, Williams has said that he couldn't avoid the books because his grandchildren kept raving about them. And when word got out that Chris Columbus was going to direct it, he felt that reading the novel would help him with the score. Everyone knows about the Harry Potter storyline, so I don't feel that I need to say much about it here. The first book follows Harry's first year at the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, and his first confrontation with Voldemort, the wizard who killed his parents and failed to kill Harry as a toddler. It's perfect for Chris Columbus, as the main characters were all children, and directing children was Columbus's forte. Many articles written before the release of the film, especially those written by British journalists, try to stir up controversy that Columbus was an American director, and what does he know about British children? On the other side of that, the articles praised the choice of casting only English actors, a directive of Arthur J.K. Rowling, and this would become a source of comedy with the Harry Potter movies. Over the course of eight films, it seemed like every prominent English actor made an appearance in one or more Harry Potter movies. In the first movie, Maggie Smith, John Cleese, John Hurt, Richard Harris, Alan Rickman, and Julie Walters had prominent roles. The only person in that list to have not been nominated for an Oscar is Rickman, but he was already ultra-famous for his villain role in Die Hard. But the films still belong to the trio of Harry, Ron, and Hermione, and the casting of those three pivotal roles brought out every child actor in the United Kingdom. Daniel Radcliffe nabbed the role of Harry after the producers met him at a play and asked him to do a screen test. Everyone loved him. Now as for Rupert Grint and Emma Watson, this would be their first real acting jobs, and so off they went to join Radcliffe as Ron and Hermione respectively and take on a new life as superstars. Sorcerer's Stone was filmed at Leavesden Studios, just a year or so after filming completed there on The Phantom Menace. When future Harry Potter movies took over Leavesden Studios, it forced the two remaining Star Wars sequels to move to filming to Australia. John Williams was already locked in for composing the score when filming was completed, thanks to a previous relationship with Chris Columbus on three previous films. With all of production taking place in the United Kingdom, Williams had planned to use the London Symphony Orchestra for the score. But the planned time frame for recording created a conflict for the LSO, 
and Williams was forced to use a studio orchestra similar to what he often uses in Hollywood recording sessions. He did get the use of LSO principal trumpet player Maurice Murphy, who had been so instrumental to the Star Wars sound. This was early spring 2001, and while he was wrapping up work on AI, which was incidentally also a Warner Brothers film, he was asked to put in some music for the first trailer for Harry Potter. He did so without seeing any images from the film, but had some preconceived notions from his knowledge of the plot from the book. The trailers played in front of a few movies that summer, including another Warner Brothers movie which also featured John Williams' music, AI, Artificial Intelligence. As I sat waiting for Steven Spielberg's film to begin, the trailer started to play with this music. I knew John Williams was doing the Harry Potter score, but I wasn't sure if that was music written specifically for the trailer or someone else's music, which is almost always the case. My friends at the John Williams Fan Network were quick to confirm that summer that Williams did indeed write new music, and when I saw another Harry Potter trailer in early fall, it had the same music, and I was excited by what I heard. And this gives me the opportunity to discuss the elephant in the room. Yes, most of the music for Harry Potter, including that main music theme, sounds very much like the music from Home Alone, the first collaboration between Columbus and Williams. The Celeste, a piano-like instrument that plays much higher notes, shoulders a lot of the comparisons, but I don't think the music in Home Alone would fit in Harry Potter, and vice versa. The Celeste in particular seemed to fit both films for different reasons. In Home Alone, it helped to remind us of the Nutcracker, in Harry Potter, it gives a childlike feel that puts us immediately into the wizarding world. I never thought to myself, hey, this is Home Alone music in Harry Potter. I simply thought it was amazing music that I listened to quite often and caused me to see Sorcerer's Stone twice on opening weekend. What we hear in this score is a major return to melodic composition that we have not really heard in a John Williams score since Schindler's List in 1993. Just about every musical cue in Sorcerer's Stone utilizes one of the established themes or creates a recognizable melody to adhere to the action. In contrast, most action scores written by John Williams in this time relied more on rhythm and tone to set the atmosphere. This return to thematic writing is why many John Williams fans have argued to me that the Maestro's Golden Age extended to 2001, and in many ways that's correct if we disregard the style shifts in much of the scores from 1995 to 2001. Further proving how much John Williams leaned on thematic writing for Sorcerer's Stone, 
The maestro composed seven major themes for this film. Seven. Yes, he has written that many themes for a film before, and subject matter such as Harry Potter's world practically screams for almost everything to get some leitmotif attached to it. The first and most famous theme is the one you heard in the trailer. Williams called it Hedwig's theme, and the title just makes me want to pull out my hair. Harry's owl Hedwig is hardly a major character in Social Stone, and in the rest of the series for that matter. But Williams continued to call it a theme for Harry's owl, even saying this at a concert before playing the music in summer 2001. This particular piece is about Hedwig the owl who brings messages from the world of the witches to the world of the muggles. This theme, I think, is really the main theme for the entire film, and for Harry Potter, very much like the Star Wars theme identifies with Luke Skywalker and the general story. And what I love about this theme is that it's not about its performance on the Celeste, but its waltz-like quality. The theme is written in 3-8 time, very similar to the 3-4 time signature inherent in waltzes. And if you count out the three beats when you hear the theme, it becomes more clear. What makes this such a great feature of the theme is that it has a relation to the witch's theme from The Witches of Eastwick. That theme is written in 4-4, but if you remember my conversation with John Maria Caschetto in the Eastwick episode, we categorized that theme as a dance. And though most people wouldn't think to dance for Harry's theme, as I'm going to always call it, you could do a waltz-like dance while listening. Here's its first appearance in the film as it plays over the Warner Brothers logo. Notice those swirling strings, which will pretty much always be present. Since witches and wizards fly on broomsticks, I feel like the strings are emulating that flight. Once baby Harry is put on the doorstep of Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia Dursley by Dumbledore, the head of Hogwarts, we get the Celeste playing Harry's primary theme, indicating to us that this is the hero of our story, before our first triumphant statement of Harry's B theme on the horns. This comes on the title screen that helps us flash forward 10 years. I was hooked once I heard that music on the film's title. I knew this was going to be an incredible film and an excellent score. The first 20 minutes of the film is filled with the main theme, and it plays prominently in the scenes when Harry is getting letters from Hogwarts. The final letter scene, when the house is flooded with letters flying in from the chimney, features an uplifting rendition that Williams has said is his favorite moment in the film.
The first minute or so of that cue formed the opening of the Hedwig's theme concert suite that is played in concerts around the world every year. Let's go back a few scenes to talk about the second theme, introduced when Harry, his aunt, uncle, and cousin go to the zoo. Harry experiences his first moment of magic when he makes the glass separating visitors from a snake's cage disappear. That's the magic theme, and it's going to pop up in a few instances to convey the wonder of magic at Hogwarts. It's a toe-tapping theme, written in a comedy vein for the zoo scene, and always light in future iterations. Outside of the main theme, this is my favorite theme of the film, and as you will see, it can be played wonderfully in any section of the orchestra. Now Harry is an orphan. His parents were killed by Voldemort, and he spends a large portion of the movie learning about his father and mother who were famous wizards. It's only fitting that Williams gives Harry's longing some thematic material, and we'll call it the family theme. Its introduction comes after that letter scene, when the Dursleys are hiding out in a house surrounded by a raging sea. Harry draws a birthday cake in the dirt to celebrate turning 11. The moment is highlighted by an oboe playing a wistful melody. We'll come back to it a bit later when it gets a bit of an expansion. Of course, there's a theme for the Sorcerer's Stone. It gives people the ability to live forever, and it's the reason why the plot moves through the film. Harry finds out Voldemort needs it to come back to life, and in the beginning of the movie, Harry is taken to the vault where it is being stored. When the vault opens, we only see a small item wrapped in cloth, but Williams uses some musical foreshadowing to let us know that this is going to be the stone that causes so much trouble later. But what I find odd is that the theme first plays when Harry goes to his family vault and finds that his parents left him a lot of money. Why the stone theme needed to play here is beyond me, but we know that Williams likes to put themes in strange places sometimes.
We really understand how powerful the stone is as a chorus mimics the orchestral melody. Just as we discussed in the Jurassic Park episode, Williams can use choral elements like this to suggest a god-like undertone to the proceedings. So, wizards play god when they use the elixir from the stone to give themselves eternal life. As far as villain's themes go, the theme for Voldemort fits right into the mold. It ends on a descending note to suggest the opposite of heroism. It gives you the proper chills with the right instrumentation, and you can't think of anything else but evil. We know Voldemort is evil as Hagrid tells Harry of Voldemort's rampage against wizards who opposed him, and how he killed Harry's parents. Since Harry essentially got two themes, it only stands to reason that Voldemort should get two themes as well, right? So those are five of the seven themes, and they were all introduced in the first 30 minutes before Harry even arrives at Hogwarts. And that's when the other two themes show up, obviously. The first is what a lot of people call the Hogwarts theme, but I disagree with that. This is actually the theme for Gryffindor House, which Harry and his friends belong to. Watch the film and you'll notice that this theme only plays when Gryffindor is mentioned or celebrated, not Hogwarts in general. Case in point, the introduction to this theme, very stately and extremely heroic, comes in the sorting hat scene when the first year students are put in their houses. Hermione is put into Gryffindor house, but the theme doesn't play for her. It does play for Ron and Harry when they are put into Gryffindor, and not for Draco Malfoy and his placement into Slytherin.
One of my favorite, absolutely favorite renditions of the Gryffindor theme comes at the end of the broomstick class scene when the students are learning to fly broomsticks. But first, the magic theme accompanies Neville Longbottom accidentally taking off on his broom and flying erratically around the school. Harry's main nemesis, Draco Malfoy, challenges Harry to retrieve Neville's dropped rememberal. And the magic theme continues as Harry, suddenly extremely knowledgeable about flying, catches the ball. You remember that I said the magic theme will play well across any section of the orchestra, and you'll understand why when you hear the trumpets blast this theme. And here's where the Gryffindor theme comes in. After retrieving the ball, Harry returns to his friends victorious, signaling a small victory for Gryffindor over Slytherin. The big set piece of the story is the Quidditch match. It's a mixture of basketball, rugby, soccer, and I guess polo. And it's the perfect scene for a composer. In this eight minute scene, John Williams uses four of the previously played themes and introduces us to our final new theme at the end. The opening fanfare as the Wizards ride out to the field isn't really a theme, but a great fanfare for Quidditch, very similar to the flag parade music in The Phantom Menace.
And once the match begins, of course, the magic theme drives the action. It's the theme most suited for an action scene, with brass and horns playing it out. Here's further proof that the Gryffindor theme is indeed the Gryffindor theme. When Gryffindor scores a goal, Williams gives us the Gryffindor theme. When Slytherin scores a point, there's no fanfare for them. Harry is appointed Seeker for Gryffindor, and his job is to catch the elusive Golden Snitch. Late in the game, he sees it flying in front of him, and he chases it. Suddenly, his broom goes haywire, and we see Alan Rickman's Snape seemingly cursing the broom. The kids have long believed that Snape is on Voldemort's side, and Williams allows us to keep believing that by playing Voldemort's theme at this point. Hermione saves Harry by setting fire to Snape's cloak, even though we find out later that Snape was actually trying to save Harry's life. Harry gets back on his broom and continues to chase the snitch, with the Slytherin Seeker also in pursuit. I love the music for this brief chase so much. It's a tonal as Harry and the other Seeker fight for the snitch. It has a couple of sync points that create tension and also relieve the tension, particularly when Harry straightens out and catches the snitch.
Harry's theme here after he coughs up the snitch, and then the Quidditch fanfare. I wanted to stop the music and talk a bit about this new theme coming up. It's called the Friendship Theme, written for Harry, Ron, and Hermione. We see all three of them cheering during this theme's introduction, and it's a very close relative to Harry's family theme. As we'll see, Ron and Hermione become Harry's new family, so it's no wonder that the Friendship Theme and Family Theme sound a bit familiar. The jumping notes played on brass there are excellent ways to celebrate the heroism of Harry, Ron, and Hermione. That fanfarish notes are played three times, once each for Harry, Ron, and Hermione, before a satisfying coda. There are so many great moments in the rest of Sorcerer's Stone that I really want to highlight. Christmas morning, the trip to the dark forest, the troll invasion. I'll just highlight Harry's discovery of the Mirror of Erised because it gives us a longer rendition of the family theme that we haven't really heard in the film up to this point. Harry sees his parents in the mirror because being with them is what he most desires. As much as I like the Quidditch match, I think the chess game scene is the best action scene in the movie. Excellently photographed by John Seal, well edited by Richard Francis Bruce, expertly acted by our three child actors, particularly Rupert Grint, and music by John Williams that had me wishing for a rewind function when I saw it in the theater. This scene has our three heroes obligated to play chess on a larger than life chessboard with living chess pieces in order to continue their quest to get to the hiding place for the Sorcerer's Stone before it is stolen and given to Voldemort. The previous two mini-quests were good and featured fine music, but nowhere in the same league as this. Driving percussion and a great showcase for the brass section led by Maurice Murphy make this one of Williams's best achievements in action music writing in the 21st century.
The scene becomes a montage here, and the music gets amped up by a factor of 10. Ron realizes that he has to sacrifice himself to allow Harry to check the king and win the game. An ostinato travels through the orchestra as the various chess pieces move to knock out Ron, and my heart always races when I watch this. Harry now moves to check the king, and the ostinato comes back. Harry wins, and here comes a lovely rendition of the friendship theme to get our blood pressure back down. J.K. Rowling created a pretty fantastic finale for Sorcerer's Stone, as Harry finally meets Voldemort, who is a kind of parasite attached to the back of Professor Quirrell's head. 
The confrontation uses Voldemort's theme to the hilt, and as a brief appearance of the family theme as Voldemort tries to use his parents to trick Harry into giving him the stone. After Harry uses some magic to turn Quirrell into ash, Voldemort's spirit rises and makes one more attack on Harry, knocking him out. Williams plays three themes in order here, Voldemort's theme, Harry's theme, and the stone theme, and it's pretty seamless. And just as he had done so famously with the Star Wars series, John Williams arranged a wonderful suite of music for the very lengthy end credits. It lasts eight minutes and brings back every theme from the film, except Voldemort's. It starts with Harry's theme, then goes into the friendship theme, the family theme, and the Quidditch fanfare before playing the famous Hedwig's theme suite, featuring Harry's theme once more, and then the magic theme. It's a wonderfully edited piece of music that, once again, made me wish I had the rewind button to play the music again as I sat in the theater. But when I got the soundtrack CD the next day, I just played it over and over. The final minute is probably one of the best finishes John Williams has ever created. Harry's theme is in triumphant brass, signaling a bit of growing up for our hero, before Williams puts a big exclamation mark on it with his signature button. The score for Sorcerer's Stone had just about everything that made John Williams famous in the 70s and 80s, but it didn't get the unanimous peer recognition that perhaps it deserved. The score was not nominated for a Golden Globe, and the movie got no Golden Globe nominations either. A bunch of critics' rewards did give a lot of nominations to the cast and crew of Sorcerer's Stone, but none to John Williams. This included the Saturn Awards, which honor the top fantasy films of the year. Sorcerer's Stone got nine nominations there, but the score was not one of them. But perhaps that's because the voters were more enamored with Williams' score to AI Artificial Intelligence, giving that score the award in 2002. Sorcerer's Stone was even passed over at the British Academy Awards, which had nominated Sorcerer's Stone in seven categories. Williams did receive a nomination for Best Instrumental Composition at the Grammys for Hedwig's theme, but he lost to a nice little title theme that Thomas Newman wrote for the TV show Six Feet Under. Sorcerer's Stone also received a nod for Best Soundtrack at the Grammys, but that award went to the first film in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And that wasn't the first time Williams would find himself losing out to the Fellowship of the Ring. Williams was nominated for Original Score for the 74th Academy Awards, 
twice. First for AI and then for Sorcerer's Stone as well. This was the sixth time he was doubly nominated in the same category, and he had only triumphed once when that happened, with Star Wars winning over Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Based on historical data, the odds were not in John Williams' favor this year, but I held out hope that fate was on his side. At that Academy Awards in March 2002, Williams was serving as musical director for the show, and he had performed a suite of musical selections from history's best scores, including a few of his own. And immediately after that would be the best original score category presented. So this made me hopeful that John Williams would win, because the last time he served as musical director for the Oscars, he won for his score to Jaws. Of course, that score was probably a bit more monumental than Sorcerer's Stone or AI, but still, that shifted the odds a bit to his favor. Alas, it was not to be. Howard Shore won for his Fellowship of the Ring score on his first ever Oscar nomination. The director of the Oscar telecast cut to a shot of Williams clapping in the orchestra pit, trying to hide a bit of disappointment, I'm sure. I'm not a huge fan of any of the Lord of the Rings scores, but history was on its side. The film was a Best Picture nominee, while Sorcerer's Stone and AI were not. Best Picture nominees tend to win the score Oscars more than not, so if I had put aside my extreme bias, I would have realized it was a slam dunk for Howard Shore. Though Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone won zero Oscars and zero British Academy Awards, it could at least celebrate its place as the second biggest earning film in history, about $100 million shy of Titanic. It broke many other box office records around the world on its way to that distinction, and it made huge stars out of Radcliffe, Grint, and Watson. They couldn't go anywhere without being mobbed by screaming teenage fans. Warner Brothers wanted to capitalize on that, getting Chris Columbus to go into filming the second chapter in Harry Potter's life just eight months after filming the first one. Also, they wanted to make sure that they got in as many films before the actors outgrew their roles. So with Columbus on board and Williams' music immediately linked to the series, it was pretty much assured that Williams would return to write music for Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. But agreeing to do that score would present a series of scheduling problems. Steven Spielberg was planning to direct two films as well for a 2002 release, and the second film in the Star Wars series was locked in for a summer 2002 release. That meant Williams would be potentially doing four film scores in 2002, an ordeal that caused him to cut a few corners and call in some reinforcements, particularly for the Chamber of Secrets score. We'll get to that one in a couple of episodes, but before we get to that, we'll explore the music for the first of the four 2002 film releases, which is the second chapter of the Star Wars saga, Attack of the Clones. Before he could even think about working on his next film score, John Williams had a non-film assignment awaiting him near the end of 2001. The organizers of the Salt Lake City Winter Olympics wanted a composer to write a grand theme for the event, which would be played at every award ceremony. After writing award-winning themes for three previous Olympic Games, John Williams had to be at the top of the list for a theme to encapsulate this new Olympiad, his first for a Winter Olympics. And thankfully, it came at the right time in his schedule. Williams wanted to use the famed Mormon Tabernacle Choir based in Salt Lake City, all 350 members of them. So for the first time, he composed a vocal component of the theme, using the famous Olympic motto chosen by modern Olympics founder Pierre de Coubertin in 1896, Faster, Higher, Stronger, 
translated into Latin as Cetius, Altius, and Fortius. And that is what opens the composition, Call of the Champions, followed by that fun boom It sounds like all the heroes coming down from Olympus and chanting together, William said in an interview. And at the end of the piece, William adds the word clarius to the chorus, which means clearer. I took the liberty of adding the word clarius to the motto, William said, a word a Roman might have used to speak of intelligence and clarity of mind. It was fate that John Williams performed this piece live at the opening ceremony in chilly Salt Lake City because that performance took place on his 70th birthday, February 8, 2002. Williams conducted this piece again the next day at a special concert in Salt Lake City with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and the Utah Symphony, and you can find it on YouTube. Now beyond that performance and beyond the opening ceremony live performance, Call of the Champions lives on with the two CD releases of the theme, one featuring the American Journey composition I talked about in an episode for The Patriot, and the other by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. The 2002 Olympics was unfortunately the only time this theme appeared in the Olympics. There was so much to discuss regarding Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and I know I left out some great music, but I hope I touched on a lot of the aspects that make the score so great. Feel free to write me an email at jeffswim at aol.com with your comments or post them on the Podbean app or on my YouTube channel. Please also take some time to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as well. It is always a pleasure to share this time with you and I look forward to doing it again. Until then, the baton is down. <laughs>